Garrett's story began on Halloween 1998. He was a 20-year-old student at Virginia Tech, and he describes it as the wildest time of his life. He had three roommates who were girls. He had a live-in girlfriend, and he spent most of his spare time drinking, smoking marijuana, and doing lines of cocaine. Garrett planned for Halloween night 1998 to be unforgettable. He was going to throw a giant party at his house. And it was going to be so legendary that he invited his friend Dave from high school to come and join. Dave accepted Garrett's invitation, and Garrett prepared a bounty for Dave upon his arrival. Some of Dave's favorite things, including his favorite beer, some marijuana, and a scheme to get a girl for the rest of the weekend. Well, the Dave that Garrett knew loved these things, which made his response all the more shocking. Well, Dave shut the door to the room they were in. He sat on the bed and told Garrett that he didn't do those things anymore. He explained to Garrett that he had become a Christian. He loved Jesus. And he showed up to tell Garrett that Jesus loves him too. Well, Dave's response was more than just shocking. It was laughable, and others felt the same. Well, Dave stayed for the party while others went crazy around him. What's wrong with him? They would go up to Garrett and ask. And Garrett explained, well, he's a Christian. Oh, poor guy, they all sneered together, like Dave had caught some kind of disease. Well, beneath the veneer, Garrett was unsettled. He saw that Dave had this peace that no drug or drink had ever given him. Well, Garrett didn't come to terms to God that night, but Dave spoke to him more and more about Jesus, about the gospel, even gave Garrett some passages from the Bible to read. Garrett was intrigued, but he still mocked Dave and mocked the Lord. There's an excerpt from one of the emails he sent to Dave. He said, I'm not trying to be a jerk, but I'm really worried about you. I know you're just peaching at me because you are my boy and all that, but I know that I'm okay. God and I have our own little understanding. I know I get crazy now and again, but I don't think God is going to send me to hell for having a good time. I mean, he understands I'm just having a little fun. I'm not a bad person, and he knows my heart and all that. I agree, I get a little crazy now and again, but it's good for my soul, right? Well, enough of that. I'm sure you'll be back to normal soon, and we can smoke a fatty to celebrate. Be a good boy and tell Jesus I said hi. It was not the end of the story. Garrett continued to party, but increasingly he felt dirty, confused, uncomfortable. Eventually he found the Bible that his parents had given him before he went to college underneath his bed, and he played the classic Bible roulette game flipping to random passages. Just so happened to flip to passages like Ezekiel 18, which calls people to turn from their sin and live. And then he flipped to Romans 2, which tells us that God's kindness should lead us to repentance. uh, Garrett was a little spooked by this. But it's not the end of the story. That same Christmas break, Garrett got into the drug ecstasy. But one night, though, he was strangely sober. 
He just felt that he had to call his friend Dave. And Dave came to Garrett at two in the morning with the Bible in his hand and tears on his face. And he asked Garrett if he knew what he was doing when he had called him. And Dave was doing what he did for his friend every night since he went and visited him at Virginia Tech. He was praying for him. He told Garrett that the guilt he was feeling was because he was rebelling against God. But that Jesus died for rebels like him and like me. He said that Jesus would forgive him of all his sins, change his life, and make him his forever. Garrett is unsure if that night or in the weeks to come. But God saved him. He says that the Bible is no longer old stories, but it was a spotlight that searched his soul, that showed him the depths of his sin and even the greater depths of God's love for him in Jesus. Summarizing his story, Garrett recounts the grace and power of God to change any heart. He said, I'm a very unlikely person to be a Christian. I loved my sin. I loved my life. I had a very hard heart. Dave was the 17th person to have some sort of gospel conversation with me. I didn't want Jesus, but for some reason, Jesus wanted me. I take time to share Garrett's story, and Garrett's a pastor now, uh, because it illustrates what should take place in all of us. And we go from raging and rebelling against God to finding refuge in him. So we read Psalm 2. This is what God calls us to. In Psalm 2, we see God's response to our rebellion, that he does not leave it unchecked and that it does not thwart his rule or his plan. But included in God's response to our rebellion is also his invitation to mercy. Well, if you're not there yet, turn to Psalm 2. If you're looking in the Pew Bible, uh, the Bible in front of you, you'll find on page 448, Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those 
who take refuge in him. For a long time, scholars have taken Psalms 1 and 2 as a bit of a package deal. Reading them together, you can see how their stanzas are structured similarly. You can see how they have a similar flow of thought also. They both begin with negative examples to clarify the positive example of the one who is blessed. You read them together, you see the first line and the last line have the phrase, blessed is the man. So what we see is Psalm 2 develops Psalm 1. It continues the description of the one who is the fulfillment of the blessed man. And so here we have a fuller picture of the way of blessing. And that's the main point for Psalm 2. That blessing comes with refuge in God and his anointed, not rage against them. Blessing comes with refuge in God and his anointed, not rage against them. And we'll trace how this main point progresses over the psalm. And this psalm unfolds a bit like a drama with different actors. So if you're looking at most English Bibles, they'll divide it into four different sections, three verses each. Each one of those sections, you have a different actor taking the stage. And so we'll, we'll progress through the psalm along those lines. We'll see verses 1 to 3, the king's rebellion. Verses 4 to 6, the father's response. Verses 7 to 9, the son's decree. And finally, verses 10 to 12, the final warning and invitation. We begin with the king's rebellion in verses 1 to 3. What actions does the psalmist, who the New Testament tells us is David, what actions does the psalmist tell us that the kings and the peoples are doing? Just scan verses 1 to 3. Notice all those action verbs. Taking you back to English class. See, rage, plot, set themselves, take counsel against. You see more than actions here, though. You can also see a motivation. Read that in verse 3. So we look at the king's rebellion, verses 1 to 3 as a whole. Double click on it, you see two different headings the reality of the rebellion and the motivation behind it. Think of the reality of the rebellion. The first people who would read Psalm 2, the very first people, they would not find the concept of rebellion against God as new, surprising, or even no longer relevant. Friends, we should not find that concept either in the same way. We cannot read the Bible, study history, or experience life now without encountering the reality of rebellion against God. It's as old as humans are. By disobeying God's direct command, Adam and Eve passed down a craving for rebellion against God to all their descendants. We saw this earlier this year. We just traced the story of Genesis, how sin increased and multiplied over time. How it shows up in individuals, like Cain being the first murderer, like Noah's drunkenness, like Abraham's deceit, Jacob's deceit, Judah's wickedness. Rebellion increases, shows up not just in individuals, even in entire groups. 
the world before the floods described as completely sinful. We see entire cities set up in rebellion against God, of Sodom and Gomorrah. We see brothers binding together in an attempt to destroy their other brother, Joseph. The story of the reality of rebellion. And it doesn't just end at Genesis. No, you can keep on reading. Read of Pharaoh's rebellion in Exodus, and later, Israel's rebellion in the wilderness after they are delivered. Read in Judges of the continuous cycle of rebellion. Read of the wicked kings in Israel's monarchy, some of whom even sacrificed children to false gods. Read the prophets and see that rebellion against God is not something unique to Israel. But the prophets indict even the nations around Israel for rebelling against God. This is here from the beginning. Listen to the teachings of Jesus, who said in Mark 7, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Observe how people treated Jesus. From the very beginning of his ministry, there were plots for his life. And the apostles even recognized that. And quote this very verse, Psalm 2-2, referring to Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and Jews who all plotted together for Christ's death. Rebellion against God is a reality. And it continues even beyond Christ. It continues in the history of Christ's church. Read of the rulers in the book of Acts who attempt to squash Christianity by beating, arresting, and even killing Christians. Read of history beyond that, of Roman emperors like Diocletian who expanded the Roman Empire to Spain. And once he got there, he erected two monuments had inscriptions on each of them. One of them said, Diocletian, for having extended the Roman Empire in the east and the west, and for having extinguished the name of Christians who brought the republic to ruin. And the other read, Diocletian, for having everywhere abolished the superstition of Christ and extending the worship of the gods. The rebellion against God described here, Psalm 2, is as old as humans are. And friends, it continues still today. It continues in stories like those of Eldas, who's from Kyrgyzstan. And recently he was beaten by three radical Muslims when they heard him listening to Christian music. He lost teeth. They broke his jaw. He had a concussion. And doctors there are even reluctant to treat him because he is a Christian. The reality of rebellion against God continues even today. Stories like Malik and his wife, who live in Uganda, who were thrown out of their house because they used to be Muslims, and now they're Christians. The story of rebelling against God continues today in Zion Church in Beijing, China, the largest house church in Beijing, and one of thousands recently closed. And when the government shuts down a church in China, it replaces the crosses there with communist flags. 
Friends, this is not a small sample size. But the first question to ask in light of the rebellion against God is why? Why? Well, look at the motive in verse 3. Let us burst their bonds apart. Cast away their cords from us. You see, God's rule prevents people from ruling themselves. Therefore, people find God's cords and bonds as evil and attempt to overthrow, reasoning that they know better. And the Bible is clear that this heart motivation is not just reserved for the worst people of the earth. Know that this heart motivation infects every single one of us. The Bible is clear on that point. And I think you could see that clearly when we think of the heart of rebellion, when we think of the heart of sin. Isn't all sin's heart the motive of overthrowing God's rule? Any breaking of God's boundaries, doesn't it communicate that his way is evil and our way is better. Reflects what's said in Romans 8, verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So in light of the, re the reality of rebellion and the motivation behind it, I think we can ask ourselves four different questions. Four different questions. One, is this part of our view of humanity in general? Is this part of our view of humanity in general? A biblical worldview does not lead us to blind optimism, ignoring the uh, many evils around us. Neither does the biblical worldview lead us to a hopeless pessimism, saying that people do not have worth or dignity. Now, a biblical worldview leads us to balance that every person is made in the image of God, but on their own has a heart that does not accept God's rule, but rebels against it. So, friends, do we have that well-developed of a view of humanity, even for the people who are around us, the people who we see every day, the people we see at work or at school or in the neighborhood? And what's more, if this is our view of humanity in general, if this is included in it, the reality of rebellion against God, well, then we shouldn't be surprised when the world stands against us in some way or fashion. We shouldn't be surprised. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Second question we should ask in light of both these things. Do we view sin as rebellion? Do we view sin as rebellion? To peel back the layers of any sin and see that at its core, it has a heart of rebelling against God's rule. And if we recognize this core, then we will not take sin lightly. Then we will not say that there are white lies and half-truths and casual glances because we know the heart behind those things. Third question. How do you view God's claims on your life? 
How do you view God's claims on your life? Are you like Garrett from earlier? Do you think that you and God have an understanding? That he doesn't get to tell you what to do when it goes against what you really want to do? Do you see his bonds and cords ultimately as evil? As restricting your life? As keeping you from living life to the fullest? That is a lie. That way of viewing God's rule is a lie. It's unfounded. God's rule does not restrict our life. God's rule is meant to give us life. Read in a place like Hosea, chapter 11, verse 4. And there it calls God's bonds as kindness. It calls God's cords as cords of love. What's more, Jesus said his yoke is easy. His burden is life. He said he did not come to restrict our life. He came to give us life and give us life abundantly. So how do you view God's claims on your life? Last question. What do you think of God's anointed? What do you think of God's anointed? Notice in verse 3 that the bonds and cords here are not just the bonds and cords of God. They are the bonds and cords of God and his anointed. That word anointed is where we get the words Messiah and Christ. And we'll speak more about the identity of this person later. But now, recognize, recognize this person must be someone besides the historical Israelite kings. This can't be just David or Solomon. Neither David nor Solomon face the extent of this opposition. This must point to someone greater. The one whose throne God promised to establish forever in 2 Samuel 7. This anointed is none other than Jesus Christ. And Psalm 2 says that rebelling against God's anointed, Jesus, is akin to rebelling against God himself. Even Jesus has words along these lines. Even Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And Jesus says, I am the only way to the Father. Even Jesus says, along the lines of Psalm 2, that if you hate him, you hate the Father also. So if you want a litmus test of how you view God and how you view the claims he has on your life, then how do you view Jesus? Well, verses 4 to 6 describe the Father's response to the people's rebellion. And we find more about what's hinted in verse 1, those little two words, in vain. The raging and plotting are done in vain. We read in verse 4 that the king's rage, the people's plot, but God sits in heaven, remains unthreatened, dwells secure. So how does God respond to human rebellion? He finds it laughable. The nations may rage. A place like Isaiah 40 tells us that the nations are as but a drop in the bucket to the Lord, dust on the scales. Then it means all attempts to overthrow God's rule will fail. God makes them fold in on themselves. He makes foolish the wisdom of the world. You can even see examples of this from the Bible and even from history. Think of Pharaoh in Exodus. 
Pharaoh was on a mission to exterminate Israelites from the earth. And he was going to do this by killing every Israelite baby boy. And you know what happened? Right under his nose, his own daughter found an Israelite baby boy. And she raised that baby in his own house, educating him. And that baby grew up not to be used by God to destroy the Israelites, but to preserve them. So God, making plans fold in on themselves. Think of the words of Caiaphas, the high priest, speaking of Jesus, who said, it would be expedient for one man to die instead of many. Caiaphas having no idea that this is God's plan all along. Remember the Roman emperors, many of them opposing Christianity directly. Commentator William Plummer notes how all of these emperors, including Diocletian, came to their demise in some way, including the dramatic circumstance of Julian, who is called the apostate. Here's how Julian's described. It says, in the days of Julian's prosperity, he is said to have pointed his dagger to heaven, defying the Son of God, whom he commonly called the Galilean. But when he was wounded in battle, he saw that all was over with him, and he gathered up his clotted blood and threw it into the air, exclaiming, Thou hast conquered, O thou Galilean. It is easy for God to vanquish his foes. So, friend, would you rebel against one such as this? Further, is your view of God big enough? Is your view of God big enough? You know, today we're told that many things should terrify us. The rhetoric of fear is alive and well, whether it's from media, it's from politicians on both sides of the aisle. We are told that every little thing should threaten our way of life. When we read Psalm 2, though, we're told that what we should fear the most is the one who speaks and his enemies are destroyed. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And if this one is for us, if this God is for us, then what the world would tell us are fatal threats to God, they're pathetic and even laughable. So friends, God's plan will be accomplished. His king is set on Zion. You want proof that raging and plotting will not prevail? Proof of that ultimately. Look no further than the empty tomb of Jesus Christ, which stands to say that sin and evil and rebellion and death will not have the last word. Their sates, their fates are sealed. This is the decree from old, that men will rage, but not ultimately rule. There's a new actor that takes the stage in verse 7. And he's the one who the Lord spoke of in verse 6, and spoke out of his wrath. And wrath is, is a concept that uh, it could be tricky for us to understand. 
So God's wrath, we should not confuse it with injustice. We need to read of God and how he reveals himself in the rest of Scripture. We should not confuse wrath with injustice as if God is cruel. Nor should we confuse wrath as if God has no capacity for patience, as if he has no self-control. No, wrath is how God views sin and evil. It's his settled view of it. So think about it. If, if God is perfect, perfectly just, good, holy, wise, self-controlled, and this is how he views sin, then the question becomes not, why does God take sin so seriously? The question becomes, why don't we take sin as seriously as this God? And the words that he speaks, the breath of his mouth that instantly terrify his foes is that his king is set on Zion. That his plan is already established and cannot be thwarted. What the enemies seek to prevent, God has already done. And this is the actor that takes the stage in verse 7. The Lord's anointed. He speaks, and notice how he begins. He does not say, I will form the decree. He says, I will declare the decree. God has formed this decree from eternity. Jesus, on his li- during his life on earth, often spoke of his hour. But the Father had determined his hour for his death and resurrection. Even the apostles and Peter, speaking of Jesus' death and resurrection, he says that it occurred according to God's definite plan and foreknowledge. This decree relates to the identity of the anointed, the scope of his rule, and the power of his rule. So just, just for a moment, you can get technical. Because verse 7, I think, can kind of trip us up if we're not careful. So God calls this king his son. You see that? We read in the rest of the Bible before this that David and the kings after him are called the sons of God. It reflects the close bond between human kings and the divine king. And something else to help us understand this is remembering that being a son back then is different than being a son now. Not in the biology has changed at all, but you always took the vocation of your dad back then. If you were a fisherman, you became a fisherman. If your dad was a carpenter, you became a carpenter. So then, the title of son, it means that the son reflects who the father is. That's God's intention for David and the kings that follow him. You see also, it's helpful for us to remember, God promised David an unending rule and dynasty. And he makes clearer how he will do this over time. He makes that clearer in a book like Isaiah, chapter 9. He says that this unending dynasty will come through one who will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So when God calls Jesus Son, places like his baptism, the transfiguration, the readers there would have this role in mind, the one who reigns perfectly in God's name. And when did that rule as king begin? When Jesus rose from the dead. 
You notice how the New Testament uses the phrase from verse 7, today I have begotten you. This is not the day Jesus was created. This is the day that Jesus was coronated. Romans 1 verse 4, God declared Jesus as son in power at his resurrection. Paul even quotes this verse, verse 7 in Acts 13, referring to Jesus' resurrection. So, the technical stuff. Today, you are, my, uh, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. How to understand that? You need to understand the concept of sonship. How David and his, his descendants were sons of God. You need to understand God's promise of ultimate descendant and how and when Jesus fulfilled that role. A lot of different things going into it. But just real quick, last thing on that. Jesus is the son more than just his Davidic kingly rule. Jesus is also uniquely the eternal son of God. The book of John describes him as the one and only son of God who existed always alongside the father. There's no wonder then Place like John 5, 23. That God determined that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And that determination is seen here. Verses 8 and 9. That God decreed that the scope of the reign of His Son would be universal. And the power of it, that nothing could stand against it. You think about that. David does not fulfill that. Solomon, even at his height, does not fulfill that. Universal rule with nothing against it. What says here is that this will happen. And the rest of the Bible picks that up. That last picture in Revelation 5 and 7 of every tribe, nation, and tongue gathering around the throne of the Lamb with no rebellion left. Picture in Philippians 2, of every knee bowing, tongue confessing, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what do we do with all this technical stuff of who this Son is, and how He will rule and reign? What do we do with it? Well, that really comes with the end of this psalm. Figuring out what we will do with this decree what we will do about God's plan to rule through the Son. Look at verses 10 to 12. I'm going to summarize the logic of it in this way. And you can do this now, or you will do this later. You can do this now, or you will do this later. It says, be wise and realize now that you will not defeat this one. It's like spitting into the wind of a hurricane. By doing that, you spit in your own face. This warning is urgent here. God is patient, but he is not indifferent. Even now, urgency, we, we get hints of that and just how our lives work. Think of how our lives work, that our lives can unravel in an instant. That the, book, the truth of the book of James, that we do not know what tomorrow holds, that's true. None of us in this room are promised tomorrow. Maybe you can go statistically and say, well, statistically, yeah, like I should be around tomorrow. But it is not 
guarantee. So even the evidence from our own lives would tell us that this is urgent. And his wrath is said to be quickly kindled. Well, it's delayed now. But when it comes, it will be swift. It will be from the same one who defeats his enemies with but a word in verse 5. So what must we do? What do we do with this decree? Well, you read verses 10 to 12, and the whole picture, you kind of get a mishmash of commands. Well, the final picture of it is, though, uh, is of balance and symmetry. You see that? We must serve the Lord, but we must be sincere in that le- uh, service. God wants more than lip service. He wants a life service. Jesus says, you are, you are my friends if you do what I command you to do. We must serve the Lord, but we must also rejoice in the Lord. We must rejoice in the Lord, but we must not be casual with the Lord. It's a picture of balance and symmetry. So then, without reverence or awe or respect, rejoicing is light, even presumptuous. But without joy and rejoicing, reverence and awe and fear, those are slavish things. Fear the Lord. Rejoice in him. So what must we do? What should we do with this decree of verses 7 and 9? The sun's reign coming, universal, nothing standing against it. In a word, we must bow our knee to the sun and find refuge in him. So on our own, we rage and see the world do the same. Friends, why should we rage? Why should we rebel against God? God does not mean to restrict our life, but to give us life. In a moment, we're going to take of uh, the Lord's Supper. And there we see the bread broken. It's a symbol of Christ's body broken for us. See the cup poured. It's a symbol of Christ's blood spilt, shed for us. So here, the hands that Jesus extends to us to kiss are the hands that was pierced by nails. The hands that are extended to us to kiss are the hands that absorbed the wrath of God for our sin. It's something we could never do. After the Lord's Supper, there will be baptisms. And one of the things that Nick and Cheryl and Bob will declare is that there is no other refuge for our sin and rebellion against God. There's no other refuge besides Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So friends, today is not yet the day of wrath. Today is the day of salvation. And God's hands, Christ's hands, are still extended in mercy. So we turn from rage Find refuge in the Son. Trust in Him alone as your Savior and Lord. We haven't done that. Why not today? Tomorrow is not guaranteed. What we find in Psalm 2 and what we will find later is that there is no refuge from this King. 
There is no refuge from his wrath. There is only refuge in this king. And what a blessing that is. So friends, flee to Christ. Call others to do the same. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful and we praise you for you are stronger than us. We ask for your forgiveness and not esteeming you as good and thinking ourselves better and thinking your way is evil and attempting to cast it from us. Oh God, forgive us of our rebellion and place the punishment for it on your son. And will we find refuge in him once again? We thank you that it is there. In his name we pray. Amen.